1: Hi, everyone. This is the New Books Network's Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert. Today, we're very fortunate. We have Professor Erica Dick as a guest. Erica's primary interests are in the history of psychiatry, mental health, deinstitutionalization, and eugenics. Erica is the author of Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD from clinic to campus. She's also the author of A Culture's Catalyst, Historical Encounters with Peyote, and the Native American Church in Canada. Today, though, we're going to talk about our new mind-expanding book, Psychedelic Prophets, The Letters of Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. The book provides the complete Huxley-Osmond correspondence, chronicling the back-and-forth exchange between two hugely important figures in 20th century history. They explored a wide variety of subjects in their letters, including psychedelics, the visionary experience, the nature of mind, human potential, addiction, and Death and Dying. Erica, thanks so much for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me, Luke.
1: So Erica, you're not the only one to have worked on this book. Can you tell us a little bit about the team involved?
0: Absolutely. I think this book wouldn't be what it is without the team. Uh, we're really fortunate to have support from the Trust, the uh, Aldous Huxley Trust Foundation. And Jim Spisak is the Executive Director of the Trust and you know, certainly well-versed uh, in all sorts of Huxley literature as well as some of the Huxley politics and deeper into the family into the family history. Uh, so Jim Spiesek, th- with uh, permission from the trust, pulled together this team. The bisbys that's uh, Cynthia Bisbee and Paul Bisbee, are a psychologists and a, um, both psychologists who work in Alabama. Uh, They worked for 20 years with Humphrey Osmond when Osmond left Saskatchewan and then ultimately relocated to Alabama, where he worked at a hospital there for the last 20 years of his career. They had the good fortune of becoming family friends, and they really describe Osmond as a mentor. They were sort of protégés in some respect. Uh, So they were able to bring forward some of the real character, some of the sort characteristics of Osmond as we tried to interpret some of these letters. Pat Farrell uh, teaches philosophy at the university of toronto he is also a freelance editor and uh an incredibly incredibly well-read philosopher and historian of science and psychiatry um his knowledge a uh, deeper knowledge of some of the philosoph- philosophical conversations surrounding these letters was really critical to bringing some of that context to the conversation particularly reading deeper into Huxley's family traditions and some of the influences that his famous family had on his literary uh, tropes Um, And then uh, finally uh, Jim Sexton is the foremost scholar on uh, Aldous Huxley's writings and uh, we were really fortunate to be able to work with him He was unable to travel to some of our meetings, um, but he participated very fully through email correspondence and through written correspondence, and just was a treasure trove of information about the ways in which Huxley has been interpreted by scholars and on really, really uh, particular details about Huxley's writings and the the specific influences on even passages within some of his texts. Um, and it was quite nice when he came to Saskatchewan and we spoke very specifically, of course, about this psychedelic phase. And Jim Sexton indicated to us that He, for all of his years studying Aldous Huxley, he hadn't ever really understood how to reconcile this psychedelic phase in the broader part of his life. Um, And this project really not only helped him to realize those things, but it really helped us to also think through what this meant for Huxley and what that meant for that moment in time. Uh, So that's, you know, a large description of a really fantastic team. And I was just so fortunate to be part of it.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the research that you've done?
0: Um, yeah, I, I started my research on psychedelics in the early 2000s and um, focused primarily on the Saskatchewan-based experiments that took place and, of course, led to the coining of the word psychedelic, which we've made uh, good use of, I think, here in this book. And, of course, it's this particular set of correspondence that led to that word itself. Um, and it's, it's the work that I started in Saskatchewan that led me to some of these other conversations around uh, the role of peyote and i'm really interested in the ways in which these these drugs these substances or experiences however you want to frame them uh how they they really force us to think through different intersections about ways of knowing um so not the the drug itself necessarily but what it represents in terms of people coming together in different ideas sometimes clashing and sometimes overlapping in different competing notions of healing or spirituality uh what counts as a indigeneity um, these kinds of questions are partly what has driven me through this research.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Humphrey Osmond and his uh, his background?
0: Yeah, Humphrey Osmond is is a really fascinating character, and I certainly hope that this book draws more attention to him. But I think he's starting in in this phase of his legacy. I think a number of scholars are beginning to look at him. So he was born in England. Um, he participated in the First World War he worked as a surgeon on a navy ship um and it he describes that experience as profoundly influencing his attitude towards medical school and the kind of training that he wanted to go into he felt very strongly after his experiences on a on a ship that psychological pain was in fact more interesting as an intellectual project but it was even more traumatizing and more frustrating Um, As a sufferer of psychological pain and it really galvanized his um, His experiences there and encouraged him to go into psychiatry in his uh, postgraduate work Um, he worked in England for a few years and Became rather frustrated and and over time I've come to appreciate this as both perhaps a, a point in his career where he had relatively little autonomy He was working for others. He also describes feeling sort of stifled in an environment which he felt was overly psychoanalytical. Um, And he took advantage of an opportunity to come to Canada in 1951. He had responded to an ad that had been placed in The Lancet um, by the premier of Saskatchewan who had also been serving as the health minister. And they were aggressively recruiting people Primarily from Britain, but also from uh, really throughout the British Empire. Uh, They were recruiting people to relatively high-ranking positions in research. Osmond showed up in Saskatchewan. His wife never forgave him, I don't think. (laughs) Um, The Wedgers were a little bit different from London. So was the cosmopolitan nature of the place or lack of it, if you will. Uh, But they moved to this relatively small farming community which was home to what was then described as the largest psychiatric facility in the British Commonwealth. Um, Now, there are lots of stories that dispute that, but certainly the local folklore was such that people felt that this was indeed the largest Victorian asylum in in the British Commonwealth. Within a couple of years, he became the superintendent of that facility and he described it as, you know, the worst expression of humanity. He found it to be just appalling, the conditions that people faced. Um, We know now from going through records of patients there that about 75% of the people who were committed to that institution lived the rest of their lives in that place. They did not leave. They weren't considered capable of rehabilitation. um, And it became a warehouse much more so than a treatment facility. And of course, this is not exclusive to Weyburn. We know that lots of asylums suffered the same fate. Um, But Osmond became the director of that place and really set about engaging in reforms that he felt required a different approach to research and a different conceptualization of madness.
1: So Osmond was treating alcoholics at Weyburn?
0: That became part of what he ended up doing. And although alcoholics did not form a, a large part of the patient population, using what he would eventually call psychedelics, they found that um, being able to gain insight using psychedelics to prompt a kind of insight or a break, if you will, a sort of spiritual breakthrough And some, you know, people describe it in different ways. Uh, that was particularly effective with people who were suffering from addictions or who been, kind of got caught in a rut of uh, behavioral patterns. Um, initially, they wanted to use it to gain insight into schizophrenia as a model psychosis. But what they found was that it was a more effective treatment in addictions research.
1: And I presume that his research was contested or it was debated pretty heavily.
0: Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Early days, um, he had quite a lot of latitude and freedom and, and very supportive colleagues, at least those who wrote to him, <laughs> who seemed to be almost universally supportive. Now, there may have been others who decided not to write to him who were deeply critical, um, but they don't show up in the archival records. There are, you know, a few, a few, um, there are, let me start again. There's some suggestion that people were critical of some of his ways, but they tended to be much more superficial. People were suspicious of his British ways, for example. They were suspicious of his mannerisms, but not so much on the research itself. And I think in some ways the lack of criticism is really symbolic of the nature of psychiatric research at that time. This was a desperate state of affairs. Um, there were very few options available to people. And as I mentioned, with you know the vast majority of people being committed to facilities, psychiatric facilities and dying in them, there weren't a lot of options. And families, too, were desperate to see better results. And so when he started having some insight and some results, and he certainly had a strong rapport with many of the patients who were living there, I think that may be overwhelmed some of the criticisms that later formed he introduced a new element of hope to a place that had been suffering under despair Um, the former superintendents had been engaged in public scandals Uh, there were problems with people dying due to the work and the labor that was required of patients so I think by contrast it's very difficult to imagine um, you know it It's easy to appreciate why people would have embraced this fresh approach, even with some of the criticisms that would be later leveled at it.
1: So it was controversial or it got controversial?
0: I think it became controversial as LSD became more uh, of a public pariah, as people became aware of it. I don't think people were paying attention to a lot of things that were going on in psychiatric hospitals for a long time whether that was electroshock therapy, uh, which also occurred at Weyburn, and we know occurred even more widely at other uh, facilities, whether those were lobotomies. Again, we know from the historical literature that lobotomies were quite widespread. There were a lot of things going on. We would suggest even a lot of medical experimentation taking place that did not have a lot of public oversight.
1: So Huxley, by contrast, is a world-famous writer. He's uh he's a networker. Uh, he's a dilettante, if you will. He's, uh, dialed into all sorts of, uh, networks, rich and famous. Uh, he's written the doors of perception and, um, and many other, uh, uh well-selling good selling. I'm this, sucks. I'm not going to, I hate that question. <laughs> your question. Um, I'll just start again. Um, So, Erica, can you tell us a little bit about Aldous Huxley and uh, his early days, how he got to uh, interact with uh, Osmond?
0: Yeah, you know, I learned a lot about Huxley from this project. And, um, you know, I went to high school in the 1990s, so I had to read Brave New World like many others. And I, I understand that that's still the case. So we've had, you know, generations of students... Who were raised on Brave New World and this dystopic literature, and for me that was you know a large part of what I knew about him coming into this project, and so it was really it was really wonderful to have an opportunity to focus on you know, learning a lot more about him. Um, we know that Aldous Huxley not only was uh, celebrated in his own right, but he comes from a rather famous family, and I think he carried almost the burden of that. Uh, that reputation forward as he relocated to the United States um, as he did in the 1920s so uh, I just want to go back for a moment because I think it's important his grandfather Thomas H Huxley was better known as Darwin's Bulldog so a fierce proponent of evolutionary biology and really on the cutting edge of challenging some of the Victorian ideals about ideas of heredity about the limits of religion as a governing force, uh, the limits of the state in organizing human behavior, etc. So, you know, he grew up in this family where his grandfather is a household name and continues to be in many circles for generations beyond. Uh, His brother, um, I'm sort of picking a few examples here, his brother Julian Huxley in many ways followed in the footsteps of his grandfather, he himself was an evolutionary biologist he was knighted um, and he became the president of the british eugenics society um, and you know he is a formidable force a well-known figure and Aldous at some points uh sort of describes himself as the black sheep of the family or the underachiever in in some respects and of course you know from our perspective looking back on this he's certainly anything but an underachiever uh, but he's a different achiever and He has this abiding interest in humanism and bringing humanity's ways of thinking or ways of knowing philosophy and history and classical literature he brings to bear on ideas of human evolution. And we see that coursing through his work, but we also see it in the ways that he chooses the people he wants to interact with. As you mentioned, he has a vast network of people. People are dropping by his house all the time. It's a star-studded lineup of incredible philosophers And writers and newspaper magnates and and then he and his wife his wife in particular Maria Nice are really interested in mysticism and it begins early on and they explore it in deeper ways uh, throughout their life particularly when they move to Los Angeles Uh, they have friends who are parapsychologists he meets with L. Ron Hubbard because he is curious at least about Scientology He very quickly writes him off, which was great right to my um, to my relief (laughs) as I was reading through this. Um, But he moves very much beyond the bounds of what we might think of as orthodox biology or orthodox medicine. And he really flirts with these ideas of, you know, what does it mean to think of something as sacred or what is mystical and what is powerful about belief in mysticism? So he's really interested in sort of the evolution of the human psyche. And how it perhaps bounces back and forth across, against these sort of hard, harder biological lines. And where mysticism and consciousness begin to influence our evolution as human beings. And I find that to be a fascinating interplay of ideas. And he is incredibly articulate in the ways in which he even works through his raw musings on these kinds of topics. And so the letters, although they're very candid and, and indeed letters... They're like mini essays in some places where he's playing with an idea. And so I find them just delightful to read from this almost lyrical writer.
1: You've got these two characters, Humphrey Osmond, who listeners might not fully uh, know much about, and then Aldous Huxley, who listeners probably know lots about. Uh, They've been trading letters over 10 years. So can you just tell us a little bit about their relationship?
0: Yeah, you know, the letters are are really a wonderful window, not only into a beautiful relationship that very quickly becomes uh, a strong friendship. Um, And so you have this wonderful relationship evolving through the letters, but you also get this incredible window and set of insights into a changing world for two British men who feel displaced from their home territory, who are participating in or they're witnessing, really, the Cold War and they're commenting on it at the same time. They feel really invested in the outcome of of some of these international conflicts of which they feel like they are kind of a fly on the wall. So in 1953, uh, Humphrey, sorry, Aldous Huxley, discovered through, he has of course an illustrious network of friends. One of his friends had told him that there was a guy, a fellow in Saskatchewan doing work with uh, these mind altering substances. Of course this is the, before the word psychedelic is coined um, and Aldous Huxley wrote to Humphrey Osmond and invited him to come and see him and introduce him to some of these chemicals um, and we know of course through Aldous's writings that he'd already flirted with different ideas about drug experiences or consciousness raising experiences different things whether it's Brave New World and Soma he, he kind of plays around with some of these ideas in his other books so Humphrey Osmond describes how he received this letter, and he was already a big fan of, of Huxley from his writings. He nervously got into his car. He brought mescaline with him, crossed the border with ease. You know, this is before Colorado had passed his mushroom laws, but <laughs> mescaline, of course, is from the peyote cactus, um, not to be confused with mushrooms. He drove to Los Angeles. He met Aldous Huxley and his wife, Maria and they had their first mescaline spirit experience together and uh it was so it's beautifully captured in the letters and of course this immediately forged a very strong bond and they continued to write letters as you said for the next 10 years right up until huxley's death in fact osmond is one of the eulogists at um at his funeral and then at one point in the letters and in we may know, You may know this, or listeners may know that Aldous Huxley suffered from degenerative eyesight. And so his letters become shorter and less frequent as he ages and as his eyes go. And for some time, his wife took over the writing of it. And you could really see the families kind of blending as well, uh, really st- forging these strong relationships. And at one point, Maria wrote to Humphrey Osmond, and she said, you know, we treasure your friendship so much. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, you were both a grandfather and a son to us. And I think that really captured the kind of warmth of their relationship. They looked up to Humphrey Osmond, and they really marveled at his ideas. But they also, I mean, there was a a 20-year age gap between them. They also had him almost like a son. Um, They, of course, had their own son. um, But he was such a frequent participant in their family events, and they made sure to always visit and coordinate family trips and whatnot that he really did become like part of their family.
1: That's just fascinating. Uh, Can you say then as you're working through some of these mini essays or uh, lyrical letters, how did you go about with the team involved, making them accessible? Um, What did you do to the letters?
0: Very little. (laughs) That's the short answer. Mm -hmm. We, We didn't want to, we wanted readers to be able to play with the letters and work with the letters on their own terms. And to that extent, what we wanted to try to do is merely provide a little bit of scaffolding so that um, the sort of the letters are dotted with names, sometimes first names, sometimes last names, sometimes both, sometimes nicknames, and you know, reading the letters from front to end is a daunting task. I but it's- <laughs> that.
1: Yeah, when I was reading that,
0: <laughs> what we wanted to do is provide a kind of a light touch. To uh, allow for those letters to be read with information about some of those names, some of them are lost to history. We searched high and low. We spent days and days and days, and hired additional research assistants with specific um, expertise in some of these areas. And you know, there were there were some, especially some women who were only described by their first name. Who were uh, one is described as Maria's witch. You know. Um, and it was actually an affectionate name if you read it in the context of the letters. Um, but as they delve into especially some of these unorthodox practitioners or thinkers, we found it incredibly difficult to identify all of them confidently. And so we did our best to try and provide a little bit, a very little bit of context such that you could find out more about them, where you could be confident that that name matched the person that you may find on somewhere on Google. Um, Of course, many of the names are common, but we tried to very carefully dig through and put them in context. That's, we, I mean, the letters were handwritten. So I guess the biggest part was interpreting Humphrey Osmond's handwriting. (laughs) Uh He writes in his own shorthand and he has a very distinctive script or a way of forming his letters. It takes a bit of practice and you kind of have to get his voice in your head before you can really follow it for sure. So all of those letters were read by multiple people, including his daughter, you know, his former uh, staff and colleagues, uh, you know, family members. We, we tried to get as many eyes on that as possible, particularly in cases where they were difficult to interpret words or, as I say, he kind of uses a code sometimes. Um, so you really had to get into a rhythm of reading them. We also uh, tried to provide a fairly ample Introduction and epilogue to give readers extra um, I guess extra tools or extra information for how to contextualize some of the things that they might come across in the letters Uh, Some of the letters are very brief And we know of course that there were lots of meetings in between and so we tried to fill in some of those gaps a little bit Like we know they visited in new york and there may be a gap in the letters or uh, a gap in the logic of the letters, I suppose but really In many ways, many of the letters speak for themselves. And as I said, as they function as sort of mini essays, I mean, maybe you can help me with this, but I think you can read them and follow them on their own. Uh, I I shudder to think what our email correspondence might look like if one were to do this a hundred years from now, but they're fairly fulsome in the (sighs) way which they respond to things. And interestingly, Humphrey Osman kept a carbon copy of all of the letters that he sent to Aldous Huxley. So he had both copies of each, which is fantastic for this project, but also because Aldous Huxley's house burned down and all of his letters were lost.
1: So what do you think that says about Osman?
0: I've had a couple of thoughts on this. One, I think if, with that detail alone, I'm inclined to say he thought something great was gonna come of this. <laughs> and he, he had the oh. website to collect these. But he did this with so many letters. He didn't just write to Aldous Huxley. He wrote to many, many people. Uh, you know, he writes to Bobby Kennedy. He writes to. Uh, he writes to a number of British politicians. He's he writes to other people that he holds in high regard. He also writes to family members of patients. People, you know, most readers, including myself, will never have heard of. Uh, he's he's not uh, elitist in that sense despite what the good people of Wayburn thought based on his accent um, his British accent that is but he's quite careful about keeping records of many things and it looks it strikes me upon reflection that he actually saw a lot of potential in so many people and in so many projects and in many ways reading the letters impresses upon me that this is a, a sort of a manic personality um someone who's incredibly enthusiastic and incredibly energetic and uh, that this was part of his own way of keeping track of
1: things. I mean, I had difficulty sometimes keeping uh, track of all the names and, and places uh, in the letters. And I thought that was really helpful was that you had some footnotes to to help readers out, uh, um, just to try and give a sense of context uh, for some of the, the main characters and Some of the bit players as well so i thought that was awesome that you and the editors decide to do that
0: that took a lot of time but we felt that it was (laughs) it was necessary we we had to keep flow charts of people and is this the same person that they're referring to over here you know when they talk about henry ford you know you feel pretty confident that you know who henry ford is sure Uh, (laughs) but in the next breath they'll be comparing him with a neighbor friend or someone who we've never heard of um and I sort of delight in the idea that, you know, the way that they talk about people in such unassuming ways is really, is really refreshing and welcoming. And yet, as a reader, it's completely overwhelming.
1: <laughs> I mean, at times I had to put the book down um, as much as I enjoyed it because I was just trying to absorb all the information in these letters. They are so incredibly erudite, these guys. Yeah. uh, uh one of the things that jumped out at me, because you were talking about psychedelics a little bit earlier, um, what did their correspondence, uh, suggest about the divide between recreational use and medical use of psychedelics? Because here we are in 2019 and, uh, psychedelics have gripped the public's attention for a number of different reasons, uh, whether or not it's microdosing in California or it's experiments, uh, at major universities for a variety of mental health uh, problems. So as they're you know, bashing these letters out and sending them to each other, I mean are they talking about uh, recreational use? Are they talking about strictly using uh, psychedelics in clinical settings?
0: You know it, it's an interesting question and uh, Huxley dies in 1963. And I think it's important to bear in mind, uh, you know, he, he dies of cancer the same day that John F. Kennedy is assassinated. Um, and I think that much of the conversation about recreational use of psychedelics, um, at least in the public sphere, the conversation that is, I think that really accelerates in the latter part of the 1960s. And Huxley's not around for those conversations. However, If we kind of try to bracket our discussion and think about the context of recreational psychedelics between 1953 and 1963 when these letters occur they're very much engaged in recreational psychedelics they have their friends over now their friends happen to be philosophers and theologians and policy makers and health researchers um but they would not pass an reb test today they would be described in many ways as recreational. The kinds of well, Huxley himself was not clinically trained. He was not participating in a hospital setting, in or in any kind of clinical setting, with these uh, with these kinds of experiences. So it, it's I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I, Osmond, we know goes on to be quite critical of the ways in which drugs, and I, I say drugs in a more expansive sense. Um, Because he's very critical of the ways in which people are abusing drugs. And by that, he would say, not knowing what they're taking. Um, He doesn't draw a sharp line and say, these drugs are good and these drugs are bad. But the context in which people take drugs, the consent to which they give to consuming subjects. So some people are taking drugs without knowing that they're taking them or they're taking um, drugs where they don't know the source of those drugs, for example, he's very much critical of that. Um, and I think it's a slight difference. in like It's not a clean line between um, acknowledging the safe use of recreational drugs, but he's very keen on knowing the kinds of drugs that you're taking and knowing the outcome, knowing yourself well enough to know whether or not this is going to be a safe or positive experience. And I would say even in terms of describing positive experience, he's very expansive in what that might entail. You might have horrible hallucinations, but it ultimately could be positive for you.
1: It might lead to some sort of recovery.
0: Precisely. And I think if one is to read the letters with that in mind, I mean, they're quite liberal in the sense of what drugs can do for us as a human civilization if you want to kind of borrow Huxley's evolutionary terms they're very curious and very um, keen on intellectualizing and trying to find vocabulary to talk about what that could mean it's hard not to read them though knowing what happens a few years later knowing what happens at the end of their relationship after Huxley's death we know that there are other contexts in which these drugs are being taken and other vocabularies being assigned to the meaning of drug taking. Um, And Osmond weathers those storms, but he really retreats from the conversations about psychedelics at that time. And it helped me working with the Bisbee's, Cindy and Paul, really helped me to appreciate that period for Osmond. Um, They worked with him for the next, you know, for a 20 year period after this phase of his life and his career. And they said he never mentioned psychedelics, or he rarely mentioned psychedelics. And so I think it's really telling how that played out for him, that his notion of who should take them, what was recreational, what was acceptable, was a very different context, a different cultural climate. Does that answer your question?
1: Absolutely. And uh, it's is incredibly intriguing. And what you're talking about really is the acceleration of the, the counterculture in the mid-1960s. Uh, carrying into the early 1970s, and that Huxley dies in 63 before that really heats up.
0: Yeah, so Huxley was still alive when Timothy Leary lost his job at Harvard, for example. And here we get maybe a little bit of window or a little insight into how they responded to Leary. And I think Leary, in many ways, comes to epitomize this this sort of countercultural response. They're very critical of Leary right up front. Um, but the reasons their critique is not leveled at him because he takes psychedelics or because he's interested in trying out these different experiences. Their critique is that he's being reckless and irresponsible in his promotion of them. And they take that very seriously. They were, they promoted, of course, amongst their friends. Um, and they also, in fact, Osmond goes and meets with students and he goes to hate Ashbury. He's not elitist in the sense that he thinks people shouldn't take them he wants people to have knowledge sort of informed consent if you will and that's part of what they are frustrated with leary about is encouraging a kind of hedonism that they don't endorse
1: it's pretty safe to say erica you breathe new life into the history of lsd and several other mind-altering drugs with your your book uh, psychedelic psychiatry and I guess that's roughly ten years old now. Uh, where is the field gone since you since you wrote that book uh, ten years ago? Where do you think that this field is going?
0: Well, thank you for that comment, but I cannot take credit for breathing life into this project at all. You know, as a historian, I tend to keep my gaze firmly on the rearview mirror, and uh, I I think that it's a real coincidence that a number of studies started coming out right. Right around the time that I published the book, not because I published the book, but totally coincidentally, um, for for whatever reasons, there seems to be a softening of so a softening of some of the regulations or some of the taboo. And I think I think in order to understand why that is the case, we we do need to look at the deeper context. Um, I don't think that there's been a eureka moment that, you know, a drug has been proven uh, efficacious in a certain setting. I think more there's a, a general frustration or a cultural unease about the ways in which we have been endorsing certain products or certain substances and not allowing for others. We know historically, and you of course know this better than most probably having written three books yourself on this topic, um, you know that over the last 60 or 70 years, our human society has imbibed in more pharmaceuticals and psychopharmaceuticals than ever before in human history. And I think that has changed the ways in which we we talk about, understand the ways we interpret risk um, and the ways we accept chemicals into our homes and our bodies on a regular basis. And I think it's sort of catching up with us. I think it's a moment where. Uh, whether people are working in neurosciences, in pharmacy, in history, in anthropology, I think there's a, a sort of catching up with that realization that this, is, this has now become the new normal or the new modern even, if you will, and questioning that is a kind of natural evolution of human philosophy as well.
1: So bearing all that in mind, uh, why do you think the history of psychedelics is important to understand in 2019 and, and then in the future?
0: I think in a in a very direct manner the revisiting of psychedelics or as some people are calling it the psychedelic renaissance you know really it demands that we pay attention to this past a little bit um I I think we would be wrong as a society that is <laughs> we would be wrong to simply uh, resurrect these substances and these experiences without paying attention to some of the things that happened in the past for good and for for less good if you will um <laughs> i uh i think we need to be careful not just about the sort of psychological or physiological or biological implications of of consuming psychedelics but we also need to pay attention to the social cultural and political elements why were these drugs regulated in the way that they were um you know and i i really think that this gives us an opportunity to think this through not just about psychedelics um but about psychoactive substances more broadly i think what's interesting about Psychedelics in particular, though, is that the reaction to them by the late 1960s and early 70s was so severe and so dramatic um, to really criminalize these drugs in in a way that forged a deep cultural association between danger and consumption. Uh, We know that there are lots of drugs that are dangerous, you know crystal meth is pretty dangerous. I hear too Um, And yet even to this day talking about psychedelics often people say to me like well That's the drug that makes you crazy. You know, you can't come back from that. This drug will ruin your brain Um, And people immediately like imagine there that fried egg on a hot frying pan those just say no campaigns those anti-drug campaigns were so effective at forging a popular conceptualization that I think We also have to kind of catch up with our cultural literacy around drug consumption. Um, And psychedelics become a bit of a lightning rod or a bit of a trigger for some of these conversations. We've seen some relaxing of drug laws around cannabis. Um, Here in Canada, of course, it's been decriminalized. I know there are a number of states that are decriminalizing it as well. And for some reason, the association between marijuana use and danger hasn't Quite captured the imagination in the same ways, not since *Reaper Madness* in the 1930s, perhaps. Um, it's almost uh, considered more, much more benign now. So I think that's starting to happen with psychedelics, and we'll we'll wait to see. I mean, Michael Pullen has been writing about this, and uh, he's been in some hot water lately, um, suggesting that the decriminalization of mushrooms in Colorado, for example, is, is something we should be cautious about. I think we got to watch these places very, these spaces very carefully. I, I think we need to heed some of the historical precedents and the historical experiences and think about the relationship between regulation and risk. And we need to update our regulation risk uh, calculus to meet the needs of the 21st century. Erica,
1: you talked a little bit about the divide between recreational use and medical use of psychedelics, and it's in- incredibly intriguing. Can you tell us a little bit about the way Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond conceptualized psychedelics for end-of-life care?
0: Yeah, it's a really fascinating topic that I I stumbled on in these letters, of course. I didn't realize before that Aldous Huxley had cared for his first wife, Maria, through her death, uh, her battle with cancer. Um, in his moments as, as a sort of explicitly, um, consciously a, a healthcare provider, a caregiver really, he began to, in his characteristic fashion, he, he wrote about these things. It was sort of how he processed his ideas and how he processed his feelings. This time, though, he was writing about these things for himself. This was not part of a book that he was writing or an article that he was writing or anything. He did ultimately share some of his really quite raw and tender feelings with Humphrey Osmond, who had become by this point a very close friend, um, and a few of his other very close friends. And it it triggered a conversation that they began having about end of life care, dying care, um, and I appreciate this about Huxley. I mentioned before that he he developed a real interest and fascination in mysticism and paranormal, and uh, you can throw a whole bunch of words into that space. And uh, um, it, I think, it was partially his openness and his creative ways of thinking about how to integrate those elements into his thinking on psychedelics and healthcare that helped him through that moment with Maria. You know, um, I shouldn't say moment as in a a minute, but uh, that process of caring for her to her her last breath. He writes about it very lovingly, and he says the closest approximation that he could feel was when he had taken mescaline with Maria in the Mojave Desert. And he remembered this feeling of immense sort of freedom um, soaring above the, uh, the hills, actually. And he talks about looking down on the desert as they you know, they sort of shared a hallucination. Um, and he really relives that moment in her final. She couldn't speak at this point. And so he was talking to her about it and she was holding his hand. He was, they, you know, they, they stayed in an embrace for her final hours. And he reflects on how meaningful that was for him. And it allowed him to reflect on life and death and forgiveness, and reading that um, really inspired Osmond to then respond again about, well, maybe we should try this, particularly with cancer patients. And of course, that's what's happening at New York University right now. They are using psil- psychedelics. Sorry, they are using psilocybin and MDMA with end of life care, particularly on oncology wards. I had the good fortune to work with a palliative care group in Saskatoon over the last few years and on a project where we're looking at diaries that were produced in the staff room. These are staff members who are working with dying patients. That is their job, you know, so day in and day out. And they use the journals as a bit of a way to process some of the things that are happening, to unload some of the emotional feelings that they have, And the diaries are really a rich source for reflecting on how people were coping with working in dying care. I've also had the good fortune to work directly with some of the people who worked on that unit in the 1990s when it first opened and sharing with them some of these ideas about psychedelics and comparing them with some of the conversations that were taking place in the palliative care ward has been really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Here again, we have a Catholic hospital providing end of life care, they have not Publicly been very open towards psychedelics or any kind of introduction or decriminalization of many of these psychoactive substances and here the staff said That's kind of a neat idea This drives us towards some of the things that we've been trying to articulate or that we have articulated in a different context and again, if we talked about this on a pediatrics ward or you know in in any other ward on the hospital where recovery is the main model in operation is really challenging to imagine trying out these ideas, but here in palliative care, there's a different culture at play, and I think, I think it's an interesting space to test some of these ideas. Erica,
1: LSD is being used for a variety of different purposes now, and it was uh, tested for a variety of different uh, purposes in the past. Obviously, can you say just a little bit about how it's been used for addiction?
0: Yeah, thanks, Luke. The What I've always found fascinating about the psychedelic approach to addiction is that it is supposed to be a one-time use model. Um, That is a subject or a patient would have a single dose experience. It may last eight to 10 hours, um, but the single dose was described as equivalent to 10 years of psychotherapy. Wow. I I can't say for certain that that is true. Um, but that's certainly the kind of language that was being used on a variety of different units. Not not a single person claiming this, but it it, it became sort of common discourse on on a number of psychedelic units. That being the case, um, if you imagine now applying that into an economic model, it's not very attractive for a pharmaceutical company. The single dose, you know, uh, <laughs> the single dose therapy flies mm-hmm. in the face of most of the psychopharmaceutical. Models that we see today that are daily use lifetime use in many cases Um, So I think that there's a really strong economic push against that. I think though 60 years later 70 years later part of that cultural um, Reflection on this moment may also incorporate some of these economic concerns in a different way psychedelics first came on the market so to speak at the very same time the very same decade that many of the first class antipsychotics and antidepressants came into play. So I think they were competing both in terms of a methodology, as well as in terms of an economic framework. And we're now in a very different space in terms of how we might uh, generate some kind of criticism towards that economic model.
1: You know, what occurred to me, it seems that psychedelics, um, if it was a, a one dose you're cured kind of therapy would be putting uh Bill Wilson and AA out of business.
0: Thank you for that correction. <laughs> it's it's true. Um the pharmaceutical and yeah, sort of interruption was a one-time use. But it wasn't a one time equals cure. It was a one time like disrupt the kind of um if you imagine addiction and I I, I not everyone will describe it this way, but if you imagine it as kind of rutted behavior or behavior that has fallen into ruts, in order to kind of kickstart the process or get some insight into those ruts, there needs to be some kind of, well, Bill Wilson would describe it as hitting rock bottom or seeing God in his words. Um, But what Osmond and others would say is that this kind of intensive insight, this dramatic break almost, will help to generate the insight required to get on a path of a different form of recovery. So to get you going to AA, to get you regularly seeing a social worker or a therapist or whatever it might be, to then get you on a path of recovery that you perhaps, and their argument is, that people were resistant to doing before while they were still firmly entrenched in those ruts.
1: What's next then? I mean, now that you have... have. um have gotten psychedelic prophets, the letters of Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, out to readers. What are you turning uh, your eye on?
0: I'm really interested in continuing to watch the psychedelic space. I I think that it's such a rich intellectual area. I mean, we know that it is inherently interdisciplinary. It is fascinating to the public. Um, People are excited about what this means. And I think people are also quite uh, cautiously concerned about what this might mean. And I think that's a that's a really interesting set of conversations to have. I'm lately I've been exploring some of the history of palliative care, um particularly because I'm curious about the application of psychedelics in palliative care. And again, although I'm inherently interested in the psychedelic element of that, I think the relationship between psychedelics and palliative care is another example of a space in which we have these challenging contests about what's the right thing to do. Uh, Here we have a healthcare arena where the expectation is not rehabilitation. We're talking about trying to enshrine elements of dignity. Um, That's a really different conversation than trying to find a way to cure something or rehabilitate or facilitate some kind of recovery model. When we're talking about um, dying with dignity, it's a really different set of ethical and, and medical conversations. And so, I think the introduction of psychedelics in that arena is a really fascinating space for how we think about the ways we want to care for one another, um, and also some of the elements of healthcare that have been quite uncomfortable. I think in the, over the last hundred years, and I, I don't mean dying care as an inherently uncomfortable subject. I mean, is it okay to talk about spirituality in the hospital? Is it okay? to not have visiting hours, but rather have families or prayer groups or social workers present in this otherwise clinical space or space that's reserved for clinical encounters. And even if we wanna push that a little bit further, should our healthcare system be updated to acknowledge the many, many spaces where healing takes place that is outside the clinical context? Is home care actually on the vanguard of this frontier of, of healthcare, it It is kind of a cliche to say that, you know, we're dying in greater numbers than ever before. I mean, of course, that's the sort of ridiculous statement. Our population is larger. So, of course, we're dying in larger numbers. But I think also the, the expectations that we have, particularly here in Canada, but I think as Western nations of the, of the quality of life that we want to preserve, even in those dying moments, I think it's going to change the way that we talk about the expectations for dying care. Um, in the future, and I really hope that this allows us to have a more expansive and more creative set of conversations about those intersections about citizens, human rights, and healthcare.
1: Erica, what kind of advice do you give younger researchers and writers that are trying to get that first book out?
0: I wish I had a a standard answer for that. Um, It's a tricky question because I think everyone has a different relationship both with the research that they're engaged with and the writing process itself. Um, but really, I think it's work like anything else. Um, it's, you know, 5% inspiration and 95% hard work. And if you wait until you feel like you're in the mood to write the perfect sentence, you might wait a long time. Um, and sometimes it's just kind of elbow grease that, that gets the work done. And, and that sounds maybe overly simplistic, but, um, I think writing is like any any other kind of work it takes Remember, dedication.
1: Do you have some sort of I know there's no magic formula, but on the other end, uh, do you have some sort of writing kryptonite? I drink a stops, lot. What stops <laughs> you?
0: Um. What stops me? Yeah. What prevents you from
1: getting uh, pen to paper?
0: I I feel very fortunate to have had a lot of support, um, particularly in the early phase of my career to make sure that I had time and the opportunity to explore different ideas and, and the luxury of putting pen to paper. And I like to try to remind myself of that as often as I can. And remember that sometimes it's important to let other voices, ha- uh, be heard and to try to find ways of facilitating that. And I don't feel bad about putting my own words aside, uh, particularly you know, when I have an opportunity to try to help somebody else get their voice um, out there, or, or maybe just the confidence to let their voice be heard, I don't know if that really answers the question. <laughs> um, I'm really proud of the people that I've had an opportunity to work with, and I'm I'm very proud of the work that they're doing, and I'm excited to see them feeling enthusiastic and and getting recognition for the original work that they're bringing and the challenging questions and ideas that they bring to this community, and and I think that's really exciting, and I, I really want to encourage that.
1: Maybe this is a great place to end. I want to thank you so much for being here. Erica's book, Psychedelic Prophets, The Letters of Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, captures a relationship of two very clever minds and I think adds wonderfully uh, to the contemporary discussions about LSD and psychedelics more generally in today's society. Thanks so much, Erica.
0: Thanks, Luke.